The following presentation is brought to you by KMmedia.pro. Please visit KMmedia.pro for more information. Now stay right where you are as we present. Welcome to Positive Talk Radio, evolving ideas, one conversation at a time. Great guests, dynamic stories and interviews, plus new thoughts on a wide range of topics and concepts. I hope that you'll hang with me, Kevin McDonald, my friends, and of course, you, as together we work to understand why we are all here and what we can do to make our world a better place for all of us to be happy, be kind, and live in peace together. Yep, that's Positive Talk Radio. The Positive Talk Radio. We've got a good one for you today. One that's going to make you think. One that's going to teach you something, I hope. And teach all of us a little bit about, about our fellow man and what challenges there are in life. And uh, uh, Leah Rachel is with us. She's an author. She's written a couple of books, and the book that we're going to talk about mostly today is called Seeking Forgiveness. It is the story of her. Well, I'll, you know, I'll just let her tell the story of what this is. First of all, uh, Leah, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming. I appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you for having me, and thank you, all the listeners, for listening. You bet. Some people that are listening now and some people that will be listening later, so um, so let's let's talk about your book, Seeking Forgiveness. What did you do that you need forgiveness for? <laughs> well, the book is a narrative semi-autobiographical memoir. So it is based on a lot of episodes and vignettes in my life, um, but it is it is actually fiction. So it's not fully. Uh, uh, so it's the forgiveness is not 100 percent mine. Um, so the idea is it's about interracial adoption. It's about a white mother like myself, who adopts a black son, which I did, um, and comes to find that she really has no idea what she's doing <laughs> and has a lot to learn, has to figure out how to sort of navigate this. And I think, I mean, all mothers and all fathers, all parents sort of go through this a little bit, how difficult parenting is. And, um, and I believe that the hardest thing is that you don't always know what you're doing. There's, there's no answer key where you can sort of turn to page 14 and then it says, you know, what to do, when to give your son a phone or what, what to do when he steals a pack of gum from the gas station or, or, you know, what to do when he tells you at 10 years old, he hates his life. Like there's no answer key. So you're figuring it out. You're hoping you're not messing him up so that, you know, he, he's going to need therapy when he's older and blame you. So you're sort of seeking forgiveness for all your mistakes, even though you really are trying to do your best. I remember when I had, when my kids are at home and now that they're in their thirties, they'll say, Hey dad, do you remember when you did this to us? And I'll say, I don't remember any of that. And they'll say, Oh yeah, I remember it's got it down perfectly. This is what happened. And, and I said, no, it didn't. Yes, it did. And it's always the negative things that bug them, right? It's not like they remember the wonderful time you gave them a perfect dinner and kissed them all over. It's, it's the time that you forgot to take them to soccer practice or something. <laughs> Well, you know that <laughs> one of my sons, my wife did forget at the time that he was at football practice, and and he actually saw her car go zipping by on the road and was on her way home, and she totally forgot to get him, so he had to walk home. And I have heard that story probably oh, <laughs> twenty times in over the mother was so bad to us, and she even forgot me and stuff. So right, right, right. right. And well, the good. I 
Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I, think, well, I noticed, you know, one of the things I'm also learning as a mother is that the issues that were yours aren't necessarily going to be your kids. So my, I had a single mother who, um, she, she, yes, I have a memory of sitting on the, in those days, they kicked you out on the curb if your parents didn't pick you up. They didn't, you know, worry about you. And I was sitting on the curb watching cars pass, wondering if my mother would ever pick me up from like aftercare. So my issue was that I was never going to have my son be the last kid at aftercare. Like I'd always pick him up a little bit early. And I thought this was so important. And I, I, my son's an extrovert, though. He loves to play. And I remember I would come to aftercare early, at like an hour early, and he would, and I would show up and he would go like, oh, but mom, I'm playing with the Legos. Why are you here? Can you leave and come back? And that happened like three or four times until I realized, you know, he doesn't care if he stays to the end. <laughs> I'm trying to fix what happened to me when there's all new issues with him. And, and you know, and, and again, you know, I did sort of adopt interracially. So there's whole new complexities that I have no experience with and had to figure out. But it's just interesting. You can't you, back to the you don't always know what you're doing. You can't predict what's going on. I, I sometimes wonder what my son's issues with me are going to be, but I don't know what they are yet. And you're going to, you're doing one of those things that you are finding out as you go. Yes. <clears throat> You'll never know ahead of time, especially with, so let me ask you, um, what was behind your decision to adopt interracially? So, well, so actually, so many people think that I adopted because of fertility issues, but that's actually not the case. Um, I, I got married and my husband and I were both actually a little bit on the fence of whether or not to have children. And I just wasn't 100% certain. Um, and I had a friend, though, who, like most people, thought that I was getting older and I must be having fertility issues. And so she insisted I go to, like, this women's support group thing. And she was a colleague, so I figured I'll go just to get her off my back. Um, and when I went, there, there were women who were having fertility issues. And one woman mentioned fostering to adopt, like the foster system and fostering to adopt. And I never even considered it. Like, it was like... Uh, an eye-opening, like light shining kind of thing. And I remember thinking, if having a child is not just about like me and some family like I need to have, it's also about the child, then I want to do it. Like I went from being on the fence to like that night, I, I want to do this. So I came home and said to my husband, you know, what about fostering? And he's like, okay. And we didn't purposely try to go interracially. But sadly, there's, you know, more black children in the foster system than white children. So I think the probability was probably high going in um, and that and it turned out that way. Now, was he a baby when you adopted him or was he a little he, older? He was. So, um, so I did. So you can, you know, when they when you go, you take your classes to become foster parents. It takes, you know, a year or two years. And they also give you this really long, like two page checklist. Um, of things that you're comfortable and not comfortable with. And they tell you, which is, you know, you feel bad saying, I don't want to adopt certain things. Um, and a lot of it's medical, like, you know, do you want, um, are you okay with Down syndrome? Are you okay with you know, drug issues and, and um, addiction, things like that? And, um, and, I, and you feel bad if you don't want to say no to anything. But I remember the, the social workers, like, you know, it's better you be honest than you take home a kid that you, you know, can't handle. And for me, the hardest thing was some of the medical issues. I, I was actually born really sick and was in a hospital for a long time as a child. So I, I have a little bit of like PTSD when I go to hospitals. I sometimes have panic attacks. So I, I said no to a bunch of the medical conditions. Um, but I said, yes, I mean, racial things, that's all fine. I don't care. Uh, and, I, and I said any ages, but I did say a preference for uh, a baby. I did sort of 
was hoping for the experience from the beginning, you know, uh, on up. And so, um, yeah, they called me up with a baby that was abandoned in the hospital and come get him kind of thing. He was abandoned in the hospital? Well, the, yeah, so the, the birth mother left. Just just packed up and left, and and that's that you know that's that's so hard hard for me to believe. After carrying a child for nine months and going through that, then she must have been really in a bad way. Probably so. I do. So one of the reasons that seeking forgiveness is fiction and not nonfiction <laughs> is I actually um, want to protect the uh, privacy of my son. So some sure. of his his birth history and. His, you know, birth family and their history is really his story to tell. So in the book, I do fictionalize a bunch of that. Like the book is about motherhood, and, the, and it's mostly from the mother's perspective. I mean, obviously the child is in there, um, but it's more from the mother's perspective. And and many people have asked me why I did not just make it nonfiction, and and this is actually why. So I do get questions about his birth family and his history and what happened. And to be honest, I don't I don't want to talk about that. Well, and I don't blame you. Um, and until they come forward if they ever do and and decide that that's they want to make a change somewhere but in most cases when that happens that they don't want to well, or... and let me just say i'm not saying there's anything to be ashamed of or anybody did anything bad i'm just saying it's my son's story to tell exactly like, you know, exactly like, i mean it, it, i'm not saying that it was actually anything bad that might have happened you know but it's it's really his story to tell yeah and you and you really don't know now my, my as an example my um Mother-in-law was adopted way back in the, in the thirty in the thirties. And, uh, she always thought that because she was adopted, that she wasn't loved. Um, but then they found out later that the, her mother was a 16 year old single girl. Mm -hmm. And in those days mm -hmm. they took girls and put them into a place and then they had the kids and then they would give the kids to yeah. somebody else and then they'd go back to school and live yeah. their life yeah. um and so it wasn't it wasn't her fault mm -hmm. uh, it just circumstances prevented her and especially in those days prevented her from being a mom i mean um, i'm glad you say that because that's how i feel i mean one thing i can say that i have told my son multiple times is that his birth mother loved him i mean she course. kissed him all over and she loved him and, and life life can be so difficult unfair um institutionally difficult because of racism and other, you know, issues. And so, uh, I, you, you can't always understand what happened before you came into the picture. And right. I, I think it's important not to be judgmental about it too, because life is tough, man. And my son was loved by multiple women. I can definitely say that. Well, and I applaud you for, for doing that and fostering him. And then now in the foster care system, you have the ability to foster him and then down the road you decided to adopt him so yeah that's an important question in the sense that um you don't know if that's going to happen so and actually i remember being told when i started looking into this i remember being told that um so it depends i'm pretty sure foster agencies are run per state like i'm not an expert on the foster system i think it depends per state but um most foster systems they discourage you from entering and becoming foster parents if your goal is adoption they don't like the term foster to adopt. The idea is the goal, as it should be, of the foster system is reunification of birth families. So as a foster parent, your job is to be a foster parent and to help 
with reunification. That is the goal. And so like, if you go and saying, I want to eventually adopt, they'll roll their eyes at you and maybe even not really try to give you a placement. You have to understand that the primary goal is reunification with birth families. Now, if it can't happen, then they'll say, um, you know, we need to find a placement and adoption. And so that's how adoption can happen. But you, you really do need to be careful. And I remember telling my husband, you know, going and knowing that. And I remember telling my husband, like, let's do this thing. Um, but I have no idea how hard that's going to be. Like, if we have a child for a year, two years, and then, you know, we have to sort of let him go to his birth family, we should. But that might be so emotionally difficult. I don't know if we'll be able to keep doing it. And I met women. I can still picture this one woman. She fostered. She was hoping to foster a duck. She fostered nine times, um, and I met her on her ninth time, and she was returning the child to the birth family and happy for the child, but just bawling. I mean, bawling, um, you know, having raised the child for a year or two and how hard it was to let them go. So I didn't know how long I was going to be able to do it, but uh, I went in to see what happened. <laughs> I, I can only tell you from my perspective that that would be really, really hard to pour your heart and soul into a baby, you bond with them, and then somebody comes and says, well, you know what, you have to give them up. That would be that would be really, really, really hard. But in your case, that didn't happen because they- That did not happen, yes. We did adopt on the very first uh, placement, that's true. And so that did, that did not happen, yes. And that, that's, now how long did you have to wait before you, they would allow you to adopt? Well, so, okay, so becoming a foster parent and taking all the classes and getting the home study and all of that stuff takes, I'm pretty sure it took like a year and a half. It took a while. Um, and then again, if you do put a preference for a very young child, like birth or under a year, that can hold, I mean, while there are a lot of children in the foster system, that can hold it up too. So um, I think it took about another year until there was a, actually a baby um, available. So it, I, all I know is it was over two years from the time. And it was funny because I was just starting to think maybe it wasn't going to happen or, or I don't know, you know, we're going to get a placement or something. And just as I was like, let's plan a big, big vacation to Europe. <laughs> then we get the call, which is, I'm glad we didn't plan that. Because <laughs> um, they give you the call. And I, I was actually out of town. I was at a conference in Iowa, I always remember. Um, I was actually at the Iowa Writers Workshop. And, oh, wow. Um, this is a summer conference. And I got the call. There was a baby. And they were seriously like, can you come tomorrow? I'm like, oh, my God, I can come in two days. I need a day. Like, give me a day to get there. So, um, yeah, you get no, you go from thinking it's never going to happen to you have a day. And I often told people, I, I personally find that one of the hardest things about um, the process is that, you know, most uh, having a child naturally, you have nine months to sort of like plan and ask for leave from work and read books. Um, I mean, I guess we knew this was eventually going to happen. but I also and I had a day and then I had to like try to sign up for, you know, daycare and there's a wait list of a year. And I also, I had to tell work, I have a baby and no one knew I was going to about to have a baby. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> well, it's crazy to get a baby in a day. Like that's all I'm saying. Well, I can only imagine. And plus the fact when you got nine months and about month four or five, you can, you can find out what sex a baby is going to be. And so you can paint the bedroom and you can uh, do everything to make it real cutesy and nice for that particular baby if you got a day you don't get to do any of that yeah no and i wasn't even in town so it's funny i called a friend of mine who's a nurse and i told her and she's like i will take care of everything so the day it took me to finish up what i was doing and, and drive back to missouri 
she went to Target and bought like $300 worth of bottles and nappies, whatever, and <laughs> came to my house and put the crib together and laid everything out on the bed. So I came home to like, yeah, so, it, you know, it, it does take a support system. And I had a really nice friend who knew a lot about babies and healthcare and helped me out. <laughs> that is a good friend. So that's, that, that's awesome. So you, you have the baby and then a, a year or so later, they allow you to adopt and to move forward with that. And then he's your son and he is an African-American uh, boy who's going to be an African-American man. And you're a white lady. And did you think that there were going to be challenges and the type of challenges that you have had? Uh, when I mean, I was certain baby? there were going to be challenges. Um, I don't think, I mean, so this was before Michael Brown. This was before everything. It was only a couple of years before, but it was really before a lot of, before the term white privilege was in common usage. Um, and so uh, I, I, there so I certainly had white privilege, have white privilege. There are things you don't realize. And I think I was very sort of open and knew I was going to have challenges. But I don't think you can predict some of these things. Some of these things are shocking, I mean, that, that happen. I mean, I can tell you a story of, like, the first time we went, I went to take him to the dentist. You know, he's five years old, and it's time to go to the dentist for the first time. So uh, I, you know, get a name of a pedi- you know, pediatric dentist, and I make an appointment, and I, we show up. And we walk in and the secretary like slides the glass partition open and she looks at us and closes it and goes away and comes back and opens it and looks us up and down. And she says to me, you know, I need your papers. And I'm like, the insurance card? Here's my, here's, here's his, here's mine. And she's like, no, 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 I need your papers. I'm like, I'm really sorry. I have no idea what you're talking about. She's like, I can't treat the boy until I have approval from his mother that he can be treated. And I'm like, well, I am his mother and I'm here to take him to, you know, and she's like, oh, I can't treat him until you can prove that. I'm like, I don't understand what you need from me. She's like, I need guardian papers, adoption papers, or we can't treat him. Who brings that to it? I, so again, just shocking. I had no idea something like this could happen. And who brings that to a dentist appointment? So of course we had to leave. And, you know, my son's going, where's my lollipop? Because I told him you get lollipops to the dentist and we go back in the car and, um, you know, I buckle him in his back seat and, I get in the driver's seat and then I, after putting my seatbelt, I turn around to back out, you know, and when I turn around, my son and I make eye contact and my son says to me, did we have to leave because I'm black? And I said to him, no, baby, we had to leave because I'm white. And the point of this story is I've been trying very hard. I'm almost about to cry the whole time he's been alive to make him not to blame himself for the stuff that happens in this world. And it's difficult. It happens in unexpected ways like that where you're thrown for a loop and you have to figure out, I mean, that was at five. Some of the earliest episodes happened well before that. I can think of an episode when he was two. And you have to think like, when do you start discussing racism with the child? Do you even understand the concept? I mean, like, So you can't, I mean, I knew going in to sort of answer your question, come around to it, that there would be complexities and difficulties, but I had no idea. And I imagine any white parent can't really have any idea quite what they're getting themselves into. Well, especially, yeah, yeah, especially if if he was um, a white boy or even uh, Asian or Hispanic, 
Um, they would have just assumed that it was a mixed couple, and and there you are. It's that's just frightening to me. I mean, I, I, I just so you know, I reported them to the Missouri Dental Board, and I did call later after I called and I, I and I said, "Do you do that to everybody?" And they were like, "Oh yeah, we ask everybody with papers." And I remember saying, "Like you're lying. There's no way. I don't believe you. I don't believe you." That was their line that they actually that was how they because they knew I reported them to the Missouri Dental Board by then. So they were claiming they do ask for papers. I've never heard of anybody else who's gone to a dentist and had to prove parentage. If you do that, they'd have been out of business. I can guarantee you that that people would not. Who who would who would think to take as an example a birth certificate or adoption papers or or whatever paperwork that you have? It just isn't. It just well, isn't. I, I can tell you why I found this shocking. Now that I'm aware of stories like this, I've seen other things on like Twitter and in the news. I mean, it was a couple of years ago. It might have been on Twitter, but I feel like it was a newspaper. I read about something similar happening in an airport where you know a white woman had a black child and she was trying to take them on a flight, and then the airline people were like, "Is that your, like, are you stealing this child? Or where are you taking this child?" And like having a similar kind of thing happen. And so you know, it's almost like. What are you, you know, I mean, maybe you should carry a copy of your adoption papers, but how stupid, how ridiculous is that, that you would even have to, but it, it does happen. Actually, it's one of those things I've seen what happened to me. I've seen it described in other places, happening to other people. And your, your son, because he's five, he understood that there was a problem and he, and he assumed inaccurately, of course, but he assumed that it was because of him. And, and it wasn't because of him. And it wasn't because of you either, by the way. It was because of the narrow-mindedness of the people that were you wanted to go to the dentist with. It's just bizarre. Well, I can tell you, I mean, I really have had a lot of times where I'm, I'm very sort of uncertain, again, about, you know, motherhood's like, you don't know what you're doing, how much to explain things or not. So, you know, I can tell you there's another story. Um, I used to volunteer at something in Missouri called Room at the Inn, Ratty, like R-A-T-I, Room at the Inn, and um, through my synagogue. And what it is is um, like once a month, we open up the building to um, homeless families, mostly women and children, but you sometimes get some fathers in there too. Um, and you just open it up for a night, serve them dinner, give them breakfast in the morning. It's sort of, you know, Room at the Inn, it's called... Anyway, and so uh, once a month, I volunteered for a long time doing that. And then I started bringing my son um, to volunteer with me because there were kids there and he's a kid and it was fun. They just, it was more, my, my son is very extroverted. He loves playing with people. So if there are kids to play games with and, you know, play with cars with, he's, he's game. So I, I, for about, I would say three, four months, maybe as long as six months, I took him regularly to this room at the inn where we were volunteering. And again, and my, my son has a penchant for asking questions when we're in the car. We're leaving at the end of, we would do the evening shift, like play games, have dinner with them. We were in the car, uh, buckled up, I'm, I'm backing out of the thing. And my son says to me, why is everybody who comes to this thing black? And it hadn't dawned on me. And I had to think for a second, like, weren't there any homeless people that are white that showed up? But in all honesty, I don't think there were in the you know, three to four months he's been going. All of the homeless people who showed up were black. And I should have realized he would have noticed that because it's very noticeable. Um, and, you know, we live, I mean, we live in a mixed neighborhood, but he's more a minority. It's, it's, it's majority white. I mean, they're definitely not the only black in our neighborhood, but um, he sees a lot, you know, so he's seen basically white people volunteering and black people there. And, and he was like, why is everyone there black? And I remember thinking like, 
do I explain? And I actually, and you know, it wasn't very old. It was not long after the dentist. I think it was like maybe six, seven years old. And I remember thinking, like, do I explain institutional racism to him, and that you know, um, black people have been denied housing and denied jobs, and you know, it, it creates a. I mean, you know, how, where do I? And I actually started to. I started. I went on the whole drive home. This lengthy thing about like history and slavery and then i realized we got there and we got it came home and i asked him if he had any questions and he was like can i have some candy you know, like i mean he, he like i didn't even know how much he listened to it he was just like okay mom i don't i need to do something else and not listen to thing longer so my, my overall i i'm rambling a little bit but my overall point again is i'm constantly wrestling with how do you deal with these things how do you describe them so he doesn't feel bad or guilty um, how do you describe them in ways he'll understand? Um, it's really difficult. And, you know, and, and it should be something that all white parents do, not just white parents of black children. It's just that I think it comes up more for us because he notices. Well, yeah. And it doesn't happen in a white family, generally speaking, because they don't have a reason to uh, a, that is a parent like on the nose in front of their face that they should do that, uh, which and there are some people in some parts of the country that even frown on that because they think that right. that will make the white kid feel bad, right. Uh, right. which I don't understand that either. But uh, that's that's just me. I, I mean, do you not teach a child math because some aren't as good at math and you, you want, want to make them feel bad? I mean, no, you still teach them math. I, mean, <laughs> like, I don't understand that either. You, you, you do. You do. So your son now is 12 years old. He's 12. And he's about to enter the world of being a teenager. What that's what's that like for him? Preteen, yes, he is definitely preteen, and he is outspoken, extroverted. Um, yes, and I feel like while he's preteen, I feel like he's already a teenager. Um, yeah, because my my kid is very. I mean, he's been talking since he was two, and and whatever. So um, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm. You know, every stage is exciting and scary at the same time. So I'm excited because you know he's learning more things and doing more things, but I can tell you I'm very nervous. So the new thing is um, my son likes to, we live not too far from a shopping mall, like just a block or so away. Um, and him and his, and his friends on the weekend like to walk to the shopping mall and hang out there. Um, and and like just themselves and you know, they're seventh graders and that seems really too young. And I can tell you like, I think the second time he did that, um, he came home and did tell me a story where he was wearing a hat um, that had a tag on it but they bought it at the dollar store. So the tag did say dollar store, but some old lady came up to them and said, did you steal that? Like it has it like asked my son if he'd stolen the hat he was wearing. And he was like, uh, it's a dollar store tag, but he, you know, so he came home and told me all about it. And we both wondered, I mean, would she have asked a white kid that maybe, but either way it was uncomfortable. And so, uh, I don't know. He's getting, he's going out in the world. You're right. He's a preteen and he's, uh, starting to go out more. And so I'm nervous, but he so far has handled it. Okay. It's, know. it's, I, I can only imagine. Um, I have, I have a good friend of mine. Um, she's married to a black man and they have a couple of, uh, interracial kids. And she says every time now she's got a, he's a great kid. He's, uh, now 20, he's an actor, and oh, yeah. he's very uh, vivacious and, and a really good guy. And she says, every time he leaves the house, I'm scared to death. Um, and so he's on speed dial on her phone yeah. so that if he ever were to get stopped, 
Yeah. He will, that's the first call he makes is to mom because she's going to jump in the car and go find him and yeah. uh, to try and protect him and stuff. And it's, it's, it, that's got to be a frightening thought. Well, right? and I hate it just because, um, like I, I keep saying, my son is so extroverted. So he's going to be the type to go out. Like some days I wish he was just a geek who, like, stay, and I'm a geek. I like you know, <laughs> read books, write books, stay home. But like, that's so not my son. He is out there going to the mall, hanging out. And, um, yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, I can tell you when we, um, we've lived in three neighborhoods since he was born. Um, there's a number of reasons for that, but this last one, um, we moved into cause it was a very good school district and I wanted my son to get extra tutoring help that he needed. Um, uh, but it is, uh, and there are black people there, but it is majority white. And I can tell you when we first moved to this neighborhood, um, I baked cookies and I made a bunch of cookies and put them in a little bag. And I said to my son, let's, I, I didn't tell him exactly what we were really doing. I just said, oh, we're new to the neighborhood and it's really nice to just meet people and say hello. So come with me. Let's give out these cookies. So we spent the afternoon going neighbor to neighbor saying, hey, you just moved down the door. Here's some cookies you made and saying hi. And that's all he knows. But we did that on the advice of a black friend of mine saying, you better let everybody know he lives there and he's supposed to live there. And if they see him walking the streets, they don't call the cops. So the reason I did that actually was so that when neighbors start seeing them walking in and out of our house, no one freaks out. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought to have done that without the advice of a, of a black female friend of mine. And to this day, my son doesn't know that that's why we did that. Um, but I think it was a good idea. And actually because we happened to meet the um, police chief of the neighborhood, he was patrolling while we did that. And so I made sure he met my son. <laughs> and knew he was supposed to be there and so it was a great afternoon we found where the park was i mean it ended up being it's not a bad idea to bake cookies and meet people it was really fun we met people but why did the reason i did it was so that people knew he was allowed to be in that neighborhood well you know that actually was was really really brilliant um because and it was really really needed uh that that same couple that i was just talking about he's a mover Mm-mm. and he is always concerned that um, when he parks his truck in front of a house and he's starting to take furniture out of it, right. that 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 he's that somebody's going to assume wrongly that he is stealing from that house. Yeah, um, and so yeah. it it's it's it, we would like I would like to think that we are farther along than I think that we are in this country as far as racism goes. I would like to think so too, but as a mother, and, and again, you know, my book's definitely about motherhood and the perspective of a mother. You just got to be safe. You just can't just assume. <laughs> like I'd like to think I didn't have to do that either. Um, and luckily, I mean, I, I feel like I do live in a, in a neighborhood that's a little more um, aware of these things, but you, you, I mean, you just can't assume you gotta, you know, you gotta be careful. You gotta be as careful as you possibly can be. And that's that's true. <laughs> Yesterday, I was previewing on another show that I was going to have a talk with you, mm-hmm. and um, and so I said, uh, um, I'm going to ask you the question when you have that talk, and and somebody said, you mean about the birds and the bees? I said, <laughs> no, not, that's not the talk. That the birds and yeah, the bees can wait. This is the talk, the most important talk that that he may ever have. Yeah, uh, and that is how to behave in public and how to behave, especially yeah. if you get the attention of the police. Yeah. Well, and let me say that, like, um, I mean, I am telling some personal stuff of my own stories and I just want everyone to realize some of these are in the book. So, 
some of these little stories are have been turned into the book. But at the same time, the um, child in the book is 16, not 12. So again, it is fiction. And the plot of the book is that um, the son does get arrested by the police and the mother has to come down and figure out what's going on, try to figure out if he did do something, if he didn't do something, how to get him out, you know, how to defend him. And, you know, especially as a white mother, she's wondering if she's blaming him when he really didn't do anything or she should just defend him. I mean, it's sort of confusing. But in the book, um, uh, so I, so in my own life with my son, I've definitely actually in small ways already started to have the talk. So we've already, like my driving, been stopped like two or three times we've been stopped by the police because I'm speeding or I'm not the best driver. And he's been in the back and after it happened, like we talked about it. So organically, as things come up, we've already had little bits of the talk. But I will say, uh, um, and I do uh, think this is important, in the book, uh, while I give him the talk, I also find a black male friend to give it to him. Because, you know, as a white woman, I can try to tell him how important it is, but I don't think the message gets through as well as him hearing it from somebody who looks like him and who's older than him and can, in all honesty, scare him a little bit and say, you really need to take this seriously. And this is why this happened either to me or my friends. So I, I, I think it's important not just for a white parent to give the talk, but white parents need to have, they need to make black friends if they don't have them. And uh, they need to sometimes enlist their help. I think really important things like that. I couldn't agree. I couldn't agree more. By the way, we are talking with Leah Rachel, and she's written the book Seeking Forgiveness. It's a story about a mother, and you know, and I, I feel for that situation. And I know it's a, it's a novel, and it's, and it's, it's stuff. But there are lots of people throughout the country that that's this has happened to, and it's, it's, it's about uh, a a white mom who loves her her adopted black son and uh, and the, and the trials and the tribulations that they have to go through and even culturally things that 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 come up and um, the, even the even the topic of slavery which he will hear about well maybe he'll hear about in school yeah. um, well and let me say I just want to interject for a second there um, while I feel like you know my my most targeted audience is probably you know interracial families or, or and, and in, people involved, you know, interracial families. But I will say that I actually feel like my story would appeal as well for to just adoption, just in general adopt. Because there are stories that I have in there just about adoption. So, like, I have a story. A very good friend of mine from like college days. We've been friends forever. I adopted my son, and for his like one year birthday, she came to visit. Um, and and somehow it came up. I was talking about um, you know when Hanukkah would come. I celebrate, I mean, my father was actually Roman Catholic, only my mother was Jewish, but we celebrate Hanukkah. And I remember she got, she stopped and she was like, you're celebrating Hanukkah? I'm like, yeah. She's like, well, wasn't his birth mother Christian? I'm like, yeah, because his birth mother had left him a Bible in the hospital. I said, well, yeah. And she, and she said to me, she goes, well, you have to raise him Christian. You can't raise him Jewish. And I remember thinking like, like I was, how would that even work? Like, how would I raise a Christian child when I am not, don't even identify? Like, I literally didn't. And then it made me so sad because it made me realize that other people, like, I view adoption as not only, I mean, it's permanent. There's no going back. I view, I literally actually view my son as almost like my flesh and blood, which I realize literally he's not, but I, I see him as my flesh and blood. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It it doesn't, doesn't, I, mean, I, I, I like, I mean, I don't know. So like, it's so permanent and exactly like any other family to me 
that um, in a sense of permanency that I, I just, it made me realize how many people don't see us that way. And I'd already gotten weird comments and stuff, but from like, you know, a 20 year old, really good friend to be like, you can't raise him how you are. You have to raise him like his birth mother's religion. I just remember being really, really shocked. And I wouldn't be surprised if other just adoptive families have experiences like that. And so, you know, I do have a bunch of stories that I think you know, relate to, you know, beyond interracial families, just other family episodes. Well, I think that's a really good idea because, you know, adoption is hard in and of itself, especially for the child. Um, and they grow up a little bit and then they find out originally they didn't know they were adopted and then they find out that they were adopted and then they have to deal with the fact, did my mom love me? Did she, she gave me away? Uh, what happened there and all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's really good for an adoptive, I think for an adoptive parent to be open and honest because my father or my, um, mother-in-law's parents did not tell her that, that they knew about what happened to the mother for years Mm -hmm. and and that that genuinely affected her because she wasn't she didn't feel she was part of her adopted family she didn't feel like she had a family and and stuff so it's it's really important that everybody's i think is open and honest and i couldn't agree more i could and if anything it's funny and again you know we don't always know either what we're doing or what our children need but like i'm so with you that like you know from day one i would bring up his birth mother you know and and tell him, you know, about her and how she kissed him all over his face and, you know, stories and blah, blah. And I, I, like, you know, for years, if something would happen, and again, I like doing things organically, like bringing up race when things happen, bringing up his birth mother when it's her And I would bring her up, and then I'd be like, do you want to talk about it more? Do you have any questions? And he'd always be like, yeah, no. It, like, he never wanted to talk about it. He, he would almost be like, why, why do you, like, he didn't say, why do you bring her up? But he'd almost be like, why is she always bringing her up? And I found that fascinating. Like, I thought he'd have questions. And um, and I think he will one day. He still really doesn't ask me about her. Um, but I, but it, I think what was happening was for the longest time he just he didn't want to see himself as not a part of our family. Like he just wanted to be like, "You're my mom, and why are you making me confused about it?" And so, I mean, I don't know for sure, but um, I'm with you that it's important to be open and honest. And I'm I've told my son a million times you can ask me anything, but I do I have found it fascinating he has not per, on his own asked me anything. <laughs> Well, and part of that, I must say, is because he's very happy where he is, and he doesn't want anything to change, and that, and that's that's the other thing. An adopted child can always be nervous that the other the other family is going to come into their life, and it may not be a, a great place for him to be when he's happy where he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, who knows? Um... Yeah, and he does have some interaction with parts of his birth family now, but you know, unfortunately, because of COVID, like that sort of has not happened as, in, as much in a long time. And so, yeah, he he just doesn't show a ton of interest right now. I'm thinking he will one day. And the good thing is just that he knows the path is open. Communication, like he can. He, I mean, I really do. I mean, I literally just say, you can ask me anything if you ever want to talk about anything. Um, so I think he really does know that. <laughs> Well, and you know, you've written the book and you obviously care and you are wanting to do the absolute best that you can for him. And not only that, you're helping other people do the same thing. And by reading your book, they can get an insight as to perhaps a different way to be a different way to take care of their child. 
Yeah, well, thank you. Well, you know, it's funny, someone once said to me, like, you know, um, what does your son think of the book? Or have you read parts of it to the to him? And I remember when I when I finished my like, 10th and final draft of the book, and I had it printed out, I had like a stack of, you know, paper on my desk. I, my son knew I was writing a book about him. And I said to him, I'm like, the book's done, Do you want to come see the book? And he came down and I pointed out the paper on the desk. And he was like, that's just paper. Like, like he was so unimpressed and he was like that's not a book and so um and he has not really shown interest in me like reading parts of it to him or anything like that but i do feel like the book is a little bit like my love letter to him and i feel like like my i lost both my parents they both died by the time they were 50. I, I lost them young and if you know my mom had a blog or a book or anything that i could have i would have read it and reread like so i feel like i mean God willing, I'm not going to you know die when I'm 50, but um, my son will always have a copy of this. And like, if he goes off to college and he's feeling lonely, you know, maybe I'll slip it on his bookshelf and he can sort of see it and just know it's there. And so I, I, I do like, I, I would not be surprised if he doesn't read it for a long time, but I bet one day he will and just be really comforted to know and, and read about how much the mother in that book just loved her son and was doing everything she could to try to help him in a moment of need. He will reach out and he will read that book. Like a lot of folks that, that over the course of time and be it in a used bookstore, be it at, a, at Barnes and Noble, be it online, somebody's going to read your book and it's going to make a difference in their life. And that's important. Well, thanks. Well, I do have to say I did, I had some early press. I wrote a piece about um, Mother's Day, this Mother's Day, you know, in the summertime. And it was a, it was a, about interracial adoption. They had a picture of my son and me and my husband. And from that um, publication, it was in like a couple of local newspapers. Um, I, I did get, I got like three different emails and I got one woman, she sent me, she's much older now, you know, she, she's like in her 80s, or, you know, she's had her family for like 50 years, but she sent me a photo of like her black son and uh, this long hand, you know, older one writing the big cursive, you know, the, this long letter just saying how much she appreciated my piece. And for her to have adopted like 50 years ago interracially was really that was rare. something. That was oh something. my god! So I can't even imagine some of what she went through. And it just it just touched my heart so much that she took the time to write this letter and send me a picture. And and it made me realize like you know the hours and years of writing this book are worth it for many reasons. I mean, one for my son and two for me was cathartic. But it, if it touches even a few people, oh my god, it was worth it. Totally worth it. And I can tell you it will. Thank you. It will. There will be people who listen to this show either now or later, and they will go pick up your book and uh, because it, it fulfills a need that is not going to go away in, this, yeah. in our society. In fact, I think it's going to become even a bigger deal over well, time. Let me just say, I do have right now on Goodreads a um, giveaway open. So you still have like two weeks to go on Goodreads. You can sign up to get the book for free if you're one of the lucky winners. Um, oh, otherwise, cool. the, it's not for sale until October 18th. It comes out October 18th. Oh, so I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. So the book's not even out yet. Pre, this is pre-publication press. Yes, no, they tell you to start promoting it early to get buzz. So. <laughs> well, wonderful. I'm glad that you're here and, uh, and we can be kind of like a, a world premiere kind of thing. Well, and I will say you can read the first couple chapters. So there are the first um, three chapters, I believe, available on my website, LeahRachel.com. And um, I did partner with, there's a, in St. Louis, there's this nonprofit organization called Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson, like one word, no spaces, Before Ferguson, Beyond Ferguson.org. 
And um, it, what it, that is, it's a racial equity storytelling project. So it's, there's a lot of journalists on the board, uh, very um, you know, board with people from all ages, all races, and they publish a lot of journalistic pieces, but they have been serially publishing parts of my book as well. So you can get, you can, you can read a number of the chapters now so that you will know for sure you want to buy it when it comes out. Well, I think you should just bite the bullet and buy it quite frankly. And it's something that could go on the coffee table and, and you can when and it would become a real topic of conversation when you have a bunch of people over to your house and, and uh, having a party and talking about, you know, because these are one of those issues that they're not going to go away. They need to be talked about. They need to be uh, understood so that, so that we can get past this stuff that we are currently in. um, And, and this, you know, I don't even know what it, the white privilege and all that kind of the, all that stuff. Well, so, you know, and I've been in book clubs and I can tell you that, you know, the better book clubs are the ones that like have stories that you can latch on to and talk about. And I mean, this is, I really do feel like this is a book club kind of book. Like you can, you, you know, read these chapters and you get together and people are going to be like, I had no idea, or I have a story like this, or, you know, the way this happened, or maybe the mother should have done something differently. Cause you know, I had I had somebody else in an interview ask me um, if I like the way I've written the mother in the book, if I like that mother, um, which I found a fascinating question because she is based on me. But again, the book is fiction. And I will say that I tried to portray the mother honestly. So maybe she's not perfect. Maybe she sometimes yells at her son and throws his phone in the trash when he's not listening to her. <laughs> and does things that she regrets later so she's again motherhood is not easy or perfect and you you do dumb things sometimes you just seek forgiveness afterwards but so um i i do feel like it's a very good book club book um and my dream is that people order it and read it in october and think this is such a great book and they buy 10 copies for christmas to give to all their friends i think that's a wonderful idea uh that 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 really is a wonderful idea and by the way motherhood is messy so is fatherhood. And fatherhood. I, I do mean to say fatherhood too. It's true. <laughs> and and I applaud your husband. Yes. Yes. For for you guys were all in. You guys were of one mind and and you were all in on this deal. And and it's not an easy thing. It takes a year and a half. You've got a bunch of classes you gotta go to. It takes the time and effort. Yeah. So congratulations. You did really well. Thank you. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like I've been telling all these stories that maybe sound a little scary or sad, but of course there is just the joy and the yumminess um i mean i'm all about like hugs and kisses and i just i love kissing my son um and there's just the like it, it's funny i was rereading parts of my i've had a blog for over 10 years and i was rereading i started around the time we adopted my son i was rereading parts of it and um and i have all these things about how like you know things can be messy but then there was a phase apparently i forgot it but when my son would wake up every morning and before he peed, before anything, he would just run and give me a big hug and then he would go like get ready for school and like he just would hug me every morning. And that one hug makes the whole day worth it. It's like, it just, I mean, there's something exquisite about it. Just something exquisite about a parent's child love. When my son, when my youngest son was, um, I think he was 11. Um, and we, we would go to the grocery store and, and I would hold his hand and we would go in and we would, when he was six and seven and eight and nine. And, and then at one point, uh, I reached for his hand and he pulled it back and I knew that those days were gone. Yeah. 
and I was sad because I miss those days. You know, uh, it's it's yeah. and you, you know, if you're not a parent, if you you're not going to get that, you don't understand what that really feels like. No, I know. And, and I feel like it started particularly, I, again, my son's more of an extrovert, so he's not like a stick around really close to my, so I feel like that started early where he didn't want kisses in public displays of affection. So I learned, I, we have this thing now where like before I drop out, before I drop him off at school or a sleepover, wherever he's going, like as we're leaving the house, I'm like, okay, I want my hug now. Cause I know you're not going to give it to me in front of anybody. So if he knows now that he has to give me the goodbye hug when we're still at home, because I know the minute we get there, he's not going to want to like come near me with a hug or a kiss in front of anybody. Um, so that's our thing now. He has to give it to me before we leave the house. You are an incredible mother. I, I, no, I, I just demand my hugs. I mean, I got to get something out of this. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that is that is just awesome, uh, Leah Rachel. And by the way, she's got another book that's out that she said that that is actually out now, and you could pick that one up too. And and the name of that book is The Other Shakespeare. The Other Shakespeare, yeah. So um, I wrote that one before this one, and that was, um, you know, I, I was reading a Virginia Woolf book once on a train. I was traveling to Chicago on the train. And um, a room of one's own. And in the Virginia Woolf book, in like one page, she describes like, what if William Shakespeare had born a woman, like with the same talent and creativity, but a woman, you know, what would have happened? And really quickly, in a few sentences, she says, well, of course, she would have been denied an education. <clears throat> she would have been forced to get married. Like it wouldn't have ended well. And I remember reading that page. I remember looking up uh, out the window and watching like the scenery pass. And I remember thinking, I need to write that book. So I wrote the book of what if William Shakespeare had been born a woman and what would have happened. And I followed what Virginia Woolf said is pretty much as much as I could. So I will say it's not as optimistic as the current seeking forgiveness is. Um, it's a little, I mean, you know, I mean, what do you expect of like, you know, women in 1500s in London, England trying to be independent. It's not going to work out all that well. But, um, but I still think it was fascinating. It was really fun to research. And so all of the characters in the book, except for the female Shakespeare, which I call her Judith, but um, they're all real characters. So it's the real parents, the real neighbors, the real siblings, like every single character in that book is a real character from the time of Shakespeare. That's, that's really cool. And if you, if you don't know, I just thought I'd enlighten you that in the time of Shakespeare, uh, they didn't even allow women to be on stage. Yep, that's true. Men play the women's parts. Yep. Yep, and uh, and nowadays that would be um, there would be people in anyway. But that's how they did it back then because women were less than and they should be kept in the kitchen, stirring the pot. Right. And not and not getting out into the public much. Well, and yeah, and they often didn't even get an education. You know, couldn't go travel, couldn't do any of those things. So, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, well, even even at the beginning of our country, which was in 1776, women women couldn't vote for another 200 years. Virtually. Yeah, yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I know. And don't get me started on what's happening today. It makes one nervous. It does indeed. It does indeed. Well, um, we just need to stick together and, by the way, vote. Yeah. Oh, thank need, you for saying that. I agree. <laughs> everybody needs to vote. And I and personally, I don't care what you vote for. But if everybody in the country voted, then we would have a um, 
a, a real honest consensus consensus mm -hmm. of what we should be doing as a country mm -hmm. because i think it's a crime that 40 percent at any given election 40 to 45 percent of the electorate is what decides what's going to happen for all of us and I that's know, that know. should be wrong that's wrong i, I agree and it, it's it's only a drop of the bucket it doesn't really matter but I, I i will just say that i always um make on an election day i drive anybody who needs a ride anywhere like to, to in order to vote maybe they can't get there so if you live in st louis missouri and you need to ride on polling day contact me through my website i just drive people after i vote. i wake up i vote first thing and then I sign up usually through my synagogue to drive anybody that needs to vote. So hopefully that gets a few more people voting, but it's only a drop in the bucket. But um, yes, I mean, whatever we can do. And I'm with you too. Like, however you want to vote, vote. Just, just be a part of the process. You know, sort of become involved, become educated about what's going on and just participate. It, it, I realize it's hard and I feel like I'm sounding privileged again because some people have three jobs and kids and it's hard to get out and vote. And so I get that. That's why if there's anything I can do like rides, just. <laughs> well, and what I've learned today is that you, you not only uh, adopted your son, but you've also, you volunteer and you're willing to drive people around. You are what I would like to say is just a good person. And, uh, and I think that's I think that's awesome. So I'm going to demand that everybody that listens to this buy the book. It's called Seeking Forgiveness. And Leah and Rachel is the author. Um, one of these days when your son is a little older, I would love to have him on the podcast. I, I you know, and I have a feeling he would love that, too, because I have no idea. He's only 12, but I really do believe he's going to go into something that's very social and extroverted. So I feel like he's either going to be like an actor or God forbid, a politician he's, or something, or maybe, <laughs> maybe like a podcast producer. He's going to be something where he talks to people and interacts with people. So, and you know what's, and I don't know if this is because he knows I write, but actually last week, you know, one of the first weeks of school, he came home and he was like, oh, there's an assignment to write. We have to write a story. And it's my favorite homework this week. Like, can you let, like, and he was really eager to show me what he wrote. And then we worked on it and I helped him edit it. And then he's like, I really like writing. And I don't know if he's doing that because he wants to like get on my good side. And he knows I like writing too. But oh my God, I went to bed that night thinking, if my son becomes a writer too, I think I will just cry tears of joy, like nonstop. And, and then wouldn't it be neat if he wrote Seeking Forgiveness with a different title, of course, but from his perspective, like Absolutely. how cool would that be? Like the same book, but from his perspective, because the book is more from the mother since I wrote it. Like I'd love for him to write his side of the story. And he, I think he will. I think, and, and he's got a really good role model to start with. So, um, uh, Leah, we're, we're going to need to go away now, but before we do that, I had, first of all, have you had a good time? This was fast. It went oh by my fast. God. I can't believe it's been almost an hour. It feels like it was like 15, maybe minutes. Yeah. And so, but what I want to do is I want to set myself aside and I want to give you the opportunity to talk to the people that are listening now and those that will be listening over time in all the forums that we're at to tell them anything that you'd like them to know. Thank you. So, um, yeah. So let me just say again, you can find out anything about me as a writer about both books. You can read the first couple chapters of both books, as well as like the essay I wrote about interracial adoption, everything at my writer's website, which is www rachel like no spaces just l-e-a-r-a-c-h-e-l dot com 
So from there, you can get links to everything, including like the Amazon page and Barnes and Noble page where you can um, buy the books. But again, you can pre-order the Kindle now and um, you can get the, the published hard copy paperback, whatever, um, October 18th. And you can enter Goodreads giveaway now. There's going to be 100 copies given away um, if you're on Goodreads. And uh, so the book, again, Seeking Forgiveness, comes out soon. And um, www.layerachel.com. And you are awesome to talk to. Will you come back so we can do this again? Anytime. This really was fun. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. And we'll, I'd, love to, I'd love to book you on Positive Talk or on KKNW because that goes out into Seattle and there are Seattle's a pretty progressive town, but there's yeah. lots of, lots of folks that, that need support and, yeah. and their um, interracial marriages with interracial kids and all that. Well, and, I, and I love what you do. And I love that this is like positive talk radio. And so I was feeling a little bit bad in the interview. I felt like I was telling all these like sad stories, but like, uh, I, I do feel like the bottom line is positive that like, you know, this, it is possible to interracially adopt and, and it's a wonderful, joyful thing. And, and I love the education aspect of like learning about some of this. So positive talk. I mean, I would love to be on any of your shows. Why? Thank you so much. It's so much. It's so fun to have you here. And I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. So if you will wait right there, I got to do this and then I will be right back. Hey, thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of PositiveTalkRadio.net. Please visit our website, oddly named PositiveTalkRadio.net, for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember... Be kind to one another because each other's all we got.